You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am. Yeah. Only double. Grab your hands. Good morning. You're on Tuesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. It is 7am on Tuesday the 3rd of May. I, you're joined here by me, Genevieve. I've got Fung and Evie in the studio. Good morning, everyone. How's it going? Good morning, morning Jen. Uh, how has your... Oh, let's start with the weekend, maybe. <laughs> it's the freshest thing of the bad. How was everyone's weekend? Yeah, not bad. Um, you know, it's still been uh, astonishingly nice weather. Um, mm. for autumn so you know just trying to get out and do some fun stuff um, unfortunately one of my um, close friends has is moving overseas so we had a little farewell party for them too nice. um, but yeah like just a really good weekend to try and just relax and yeah. <laughs> de-stress although speaking of weather I drove out to Trentham on Friday night it was like torrential rain Oh, wow, um, that's a bit scary. Yeah, it was, it was like torrential rain and Google Maps, bless, oh, took no. me this way that like obviously I didn't know the streets. And so I was going like 40 in, you know, like a 80 zone because mm-hmm. I was just terrified and my phone was on like 3% battery. I didn't know oh where I was God. going. <laughs> it was just, yeah, not something that I wanted to do. <laughs> Friday night. So, yeah. But then we got to the pub, which was beautiful, mm-hmm. um, but right outside the front door like it was raining and it was cold and and there was a light right outside the front door and there were all these giant moths just like congregating outside (laughs) I was like this is my final test before I can before I can truly relax I need to make it past this wall of giant moths yeah um so that was eventful an interesting start to a a very interesting very deeply cool just like yeah Yeah, there is yeah heavy rain and then giant moths definitely something to it something to that did you enjoy the area oh it's beautiful yeah yeah and we were in Dalesford yeah. The rest of the weekend. So was it really busy? No. And That's I think good. it's because uh, everyone's gone back to school. True. And because we had two long weekends in Oh, a yeah. Row so everyone's before that. Days, so. yeah, yeah. It was actually pretty quiet, which is nice. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My mum, who's probably listening right now. Hello, mum. Hi, Jen's mum. She lives around the area and just the weekends um, in Dalesford are insane. Oh, yeah. Just, like people everywhere. Like you can't get um, a park in the main town. It's just like so many people away for like getaways, weekend getaways. Um, okay, let's uh, – what's coming up on the show? We've got a huge show as always. Yeah. So um, we've got an interview with Ravina Grover, um, which Carnegie um, did – just uh, this week. Um, Ravina is a writer, curator and creative director. Um, Her work is currently exhibited at Sweatshop Women, um, has been exhibited at SBS Voices, Time Out, 
um, Kill Your Darlings, and she's also curated and performed as part of Red Dot Revolt. Um, she's going to be talking about, you know, just her work and also her latest photography project. After that, we'll be speaking with Madison Griffiths and Beth Atkinson Quinton from the Tender podcast, um, which is a podcast series that um, explores the way in which women reconstruct their lives and identities after leaving abusive relationships. We're going to be focusing on a new episode, a new special episode that they'll be um, creating in collaboration with um, high school students around consent and the languages of consent, and it will be presented at the Wheeler Centre. So that's coming up at around 7.30. Afterwards, at quarter to eight, we'll be speaking with Lucy Honan, who has been um, a member of the Refugee Action Collective for over a decade, and uh, she'll be speaking to us about the UK's um, Nationality and Borders Act and and what changes that will have um, to asylum seekers and refugees in the UK. Awesome. And just to finish up uh, today, we'll be hearing from Shamsia Hussein Poor, who is a recent graduate of RMIT uh, and journalist and activist. And I spoke to her about her many pursuits, including her contribution to Bollock Analysts Network, which is uh, an independent journalist site advocating for issues related related to the Hazaras, which is an ethnic group in Afghanistan, um, and also her non-for-profit charity that she started, Anonymous Hope. Uh, all right, we'll be right back with the news headlines right after this. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. You're back on 
Tuesday breakfast on 3CR. We're going to launch into some news headlines. Evie? Yeah. So um, just to start us off, um, this week starting Monday marked the end of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Um, Many Australian Muslims took the day off work to celebrate Eid al-Fitr. They prayed in mosques and broke their 30 days of fasting by eating and exchanging gifts and food with loved ones. So Eid Mubarak. This year, more Muslims and communities sought to share their prayers and festivities with their non-Muslim friends. Um, Imam al-Zakum at um, the mosque in Heidelberg Heights said that Eid was a celebration after 30 days of worshipping God and he included our non-Muslim brothers and sisters in the festivities. So it's not, it's a very, trying to be a much more inclusive festival this year. Um, There's a lot of um, celebrations that are happening across Melbourne um, in the coming weeks too. So there'll be an Eid al-Fitr festival um, at Preston Mosque from 10am to 4pm this Sunday that will feature food stalls and rides Um, and Queen Victoria Market will mark Eid this Saturday and Sunday with traditional food and dance as well and um, yeah it's open to everyone um, to come and join in the celebrations so it'll be lots of fun. Um, some other news today, um, something just a bit, um, just a warning as well. We're going to be mentioning, um, um, a a murder and just, if you want to come back after the next few minutes, that's okay. Um, Deakin University academic, um, was charged with the murder of his wife in Croydon North, um, over the weekend. Um, Dr. Adam Brown, who is a media and communications lecturer, was taken into custody on Saturday after the death of his partner, Chen Chung, in Croydon North. Um, Brown and his partner had two young children together. Um, Brown was not eligible for bail and Chen is the 19th Australian woman to lose, to be lost to an act of violence this year. A total of 18 children and 43 men have also been lost to murder or manslaughter since January 1st. Um, but it's really important just as, you know, as we're coming into the federal election, um, and there's been a lot of conversation about, um, changing the conversation and doing real change when it comes to domestic violence and violence against women, especially, um, that we recognise that this is still an ongoing problem. You know, it happens in our communities, um, you know, just to think about how, you know, real change can happen to protect people. Yeah, definitely. And it's not enough to, you know, just throw money at it. Oh, yeah. That's usually <laughs> what uh, tends to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, one more thing for this morning too. Um you may have seen it in the last few months that the billionaire Cannon Brooks, uh, Mike Cannon Brooks, um, was attempting a hostile takeover of AGL, the gas giant in Australia. Um, that initial takeover bit was refused, um, but as of this week, he's now become AGL's biggest shareholder. Um, I think it's eleven percent. That's right, mm-hmm. um, and. He's declared that he's going to use his stake to vote against the company's plans for the future, which would see it continue to burn coal for another 20 plus years. Um, He addressed a letter to the board of directors on Monday night saying that he had acquired more than 11% of um, the company because he wanted to help change the future of the company. Now, look, there's no good billionaires. <laughs> yeah, what is with all these billionaires buying big companies and saying that? Yeah, we're going to like I, I think this is interesting because you know it's a it's a interesting strategy mm-hmm. to you know actually be involved and, and you know say that you're going to bring in clean energy via actually buying out the company, but it remains that this shouldn't even be a thing he's allowed to do. This should be, you know, something that the government should do off their own backs without being, you know, 
drag kicking and yeah, screaming into it of, by a billionaire. Yeah, it just accentuates like the pri- the privatization of things that really should be yeah given by like the public sector. I mean, I can't help. It's not really similar, but like with elon musk oh i was thinking exactly the same (laughs) (laughs) oh my god being a champion of free speech it's crazy like i mean you know things like twitter and things uh, and you know public communication platforms people Mm. talk a lot about how they should be nationalized as well they're still like a public good essentially Mm. um but yeah it's absolutely similar like billionaires should not be able to go in and be able to change the course of you know uh, people's ability to use platforms or even have power in a certain way. Yeah. These are all things that used to be government regulated. Yeah, definitely. It just shows you where the power really is. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch. Um, there definitely. will be a shareholder vote in June. Um, I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about um, both his takeover bid as well as the attempts by AGL to continue being coal powered as well. True. Well, we'll watch this space. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else is sick of election. I'm not going to talk about it. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's it's like a lot. I keep on asking myself, so wait, so when is it again? Like when can we do this again so they can, oh. Um, But yeah, it is important. Just a reminder to everyone. Um, The election is coming up. It's going to be in a few weeks. Uh, If you need to get in your postal votes, they are saying that there will be a spike in delays, um, delay results, sorry, just because Mm -hmm. there's a huge influx in postal votes. But yeah, just keep an eye out. If you're not going to be able to be voting on the day, you can send in your vote. Yeah. All right, cool. We'll be right back after these quick announcements. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Ravina Grover is a writer, curator and creative director. She has had her words and photography published in and exhibited at Sweatshop Women, SBS Voices, Time Out Sydney, Kill Your Darlings, Folk Magazine and Veer East and curated and performed as part of Red Dot Revolt and Sydney Fringe Festival. Her art focuses on creating and exploring the beauty, strength and realities of art by people of colour as a queer Punjabi woman. Carnegie caught up with her earlier this week to talk about her identity, work, and her latest photography project, Neela. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Ravina. Can you start by just telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your art? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Ravina Gurva. I'm a creative director, writer, and spoken word poet based on Gadigal land or Sydney. Um, so I've been... Um, writing since 2018 and has started creative directing photography shoots as passion projects since 2020. Um, So I've created two projects so far and I also curate a annual South Asian um, performance and art event called Red Dot Revolt um, that's held on Gadigal land as well. So yeah, I've got a um, pretty mixed range of um, 
of art practices and yeah, really enjoy dabbling in different art forms. Amazing. Um, a lot of your work is, of course, uh, about being queer and South Asian. What does being a queer South Asian woman mean to you? And can you tell us a bit about how it informs your art? Yeah, sure. So I think um, in terms of my queer identity and being South Asian as well, a lot of the way that I see my art is um, in a way to normalise that identity and to I guess, beautify it. So obviously growing up, there wasn't a lot of representation or a lot of ways to connect to being um, queer or South Asian as a person in the diaspora and as people who are first-gen immigrants. And so I really wanted to use my art as a platform to express that in a way that wasn't contrived or um, uh, wasn't, it was in a way that was familiar. So art for me and um, queer art for me very much uh, resonates when it, when it looks familiar and when queerness is normalised and when there's something that you can inherently connect with, whether that be clothing, whether that be the stories that models portray, whether that's like seeing someone who looks like yourself in your artwork. So that's what I wanted to bring out, um, particularly with Mila. And I also wanted to give the people I worked with, uh, from the photographer down to the stylist and the models, a chance to... Um, express their queer identity through um, whatever medium that they preferred. And so this art piece for me, particularly Nila, was quite collaborative rather than something that I created myself and um, brought myself to, um, to, to photo paper. So your recent photo series, Nila, which means blue, explores the complexity of queerness in South Asian culture. What's the significance of blue in the photo series? So blue represents melancholy and sadness, but it also represents regality. And I wanted to combine those two elements together to show even though there is a lot of complexity and a lot of um, I guess sadness and confusion for a lot of young queer, um, not just South Asian people, but a lot of young queer people of color growing up. There's also an element of beauty and also an element of regality growing up and being able to express yourself through um, you know whatever um, Moji see fit and whatever um, whatever resonates with you. So, for this particular project, I wanted to really enhance the um, enhance the regality of the models by um, you know making it very ornate, making it very over the top, and you can see that with the jewelry and with the makeup and with the setting that was used. Um, so, I wanted to portray how even though there is a lot of sadness that is associated with being queer and with, um, you know, oftentimes like hiding your identity or having to justify your identity in uh, a lot of spaces where it's not understood or accepted or even normalized. Um, there's also a lot of beauty and there's also a lot of excitement and I guess a lot of regality in being able to express it and being able to connect with other queer people. Yeah, and I think that especially given the kind of political climate in India at the moment, and that, of course, um, seeps into the diaspora as well. It's, you know, very extremist and a lot of like widespread intolerance um, at the moment. And I think art like this helps create kind of, you know, gentle spaces for queer South Asians, especially in the diaspora, to explore their queer identity within their culture rather than separate to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, in particular with my artwork, I didn't want to just represent queer Indians, even though I am Indian. I, it was really important for me to connect with other South Asians and not um, uh, 
and not and not make it just for Indians, not compartmentalize it just for Indians or just for um, Punjabis, because I think a lot of art, a lot of brown art does tend to do that. And I think there's a lot of um, a lot more that we can learn from connecting with other cultures within the subcontinent. Um, you know, even as familiar as they may seem, a lot of the cultures that we have within the subcontinent are quite different in the ways that we um uh, the ways that we uh, portray our identity and connect with our identity, whether that's through our culture, whether that's through our queerness, um, is whatever. There's a lot to be learned and there's a lot that um, I guess can be shared. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in Neela, you said that for you, queerness without your culture is futile. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think moving, uh, so I moved from Perth to Sydney when I was, 17 and that was around the time that I was really becoming comfortable in my queer identity and a lot of the ways that I connected to being queer was through um, you know different friend groups and definitely going out a lot um, spending a lot of time in Newtown um, which is like Sydney's Sydney's queer hub Um, and you know those were very formative years for me but at the same time for me being queer and connected to my culture is the only way that I can be queer because I'm not queer in isolation to um, being an Indian person or a brown person. I am queer and I am brown. So for me to connect with my queerness, it means to be able to connect with my culture and the way that I wanted to, um, I guess, work with everyone that I worked with in Neela and portray that was to show that your queer identity and your cultural identity are both inherent parts of you but both are equally important parts of you and both mesh together they're not completely separate parts of you and it's really important to have spaces uh, gentle spaces as you said and safe spaces and um, spaces where you can learn a lot more about yourself and feel comfortable in yourself not just in um, not just in a silo with one part of your identity and I think that's why I've really whenever I've like thought about my queerness or whenever I've um you know, consider like the art that I can do, for example, I um, will exclusively only consume queer art if it is made by people of colour, because to me, um, queerness under colonialism, queerness under whiteness is not something that I have ever resonated with and that ever makes sense to me because that's not my experience. Yeah, it, that I completely relate to that as a queer brown person myself. It's, um, you know, especially when you live in Australia, it's quite difficult sometimes to um, find a cultural space because white spaces can be quite white Um, and yeah I think that art like this is a big step towards um, people of color being able to find their identity rather than having to conform to white queer spaces. Yeah absolutely I think conforming to white queer spaces a lot of the times is uh, you know the only point of access we have to um, you know, feeling comfortable or even not even feeling comfortable, but feeling like some form of connection with our queerness. But I think when you think about yourself as a queer person, you don't just think about yourself in that silo. You think about your entire identity, who you are, and whether that's, you know, part of your queerness, part of your culture, um, part of your experiences as, um, you know, a first-gen immigrant living in, um, living in um, you know, in another country. I think having... Um, having access to um, platforms and having access to art and having access to community where you can connect 
with yourself as a whole person rather than as separate parts of your identity is really, really important, um, not just for your mental health, you know, but for your emotional health and to feel comfortable as a queer person. And it's quite validating as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think you um, mentioned this earlier, but often in South Asian cultures, um, there's a tendency to hide a part of yourself to kind of not be fully out in certain ways. And and sometimes that's necessary for safety purposes. But it's nice that, you know, there can be spaces now where you can be your full self and you can have your queer identity and your culture come together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, it's, it's very nuanced, right? And it's very complex because when you think about, um, for example, a lot of our parents and this extends you know beyond south asians like a lot of people of color relate to this where your parents you know if they're migrants um they come from um you know they leave their country and they build a life in a new country and so to them um survival means something very different to what it can mean to us and so i think um there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of complexity around coming out and being a person who's uh, able to be queer comfortably in your own culture for sure Definitely. And I think now um, there's more kind of mainstream examples and a bit more visibility of uh, queerness, um, even sort of in Bollywood or like South Asian films or um, you have like Tan France on Queer Eye and you have artists like Alok Menon who are, you know, visibly non-binary and people are listening and people are able to see these people succeed so I think that even for our parents generations that might be slowly changing yeah I'd hope so I think uh, yeah having more representation is really key um to start with but you know I think as well using that representation as a means to access structural change and access change within our community even shift you know mindsets from um you know, towards like from accepting to normalizing, for example. I think that's 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 been a really key thing for me um, with, in terms of what I feel most comfortable with as a queer person. And, you know, by that I mean it's like your queer identity not being something that is, um, that is necessarily like seen as something different or seen as something unique. It's just seen as something as who you are as um, much as, you know, having brown hair is or having, you know, brown eyes or green eyes or whatever it's not something that for me personally I think about day to day or um use as a platform necessarily to differentiate myself from other people so I think being able to get to that stage is really key in order for um yeah young people to feel safety but at the same time I think there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of layers and there's a lot of complexity um regarding queerness within our cultures because you know when you think about um, before um, the subcontinent was colonized there was um, you know queerness was spoken about in the Kambasutra, queerness was spoken about in a lot of um, different religious and cultural texts and uh, there's a lot of um, yeah there's a lot of like a colonial lens put on top of queerness um, because of that and I think when we think about that critically when we talk to like elders in our community even talk to you know people in our own our own peers it's key to remember that because of you know things beyond our control like these structural issues and colonialism there's um you know a lot that 
I guess there's a lot of work that's still to be done, but a lot of, um, I guess, big shifts that need to happen in order to get to a stage where everyone not just feels like accepted and comfortable, but um, is able to also contribute to making the structural changes. Absolutely. Um, so what's next for you? Are there, um, do you have any projects coming up? Yeah, I do. I've, um, yeah, I'm really keen to continue working more um, in the creative direction field and hopefully being able to photograph um, uh, these projects myself. I haven't done much photography, but I think, um, you know, that would be really exciting to do. And I want to continue to explore this color series. So my idea for it is to um, have a different color represent a different um, part of my culture and create artwork that is, um, that is just really um, aesthetically very, very beautiful and very visually appealing, but also marry that up with, um, with, um, with, with written work as well, which I started to do with Mila when I um, requested the models and the stylists to um, write down what being queer means for them and how they related to their culture and how they related to their queer identity. So I'm really excited to continue with the series. Amazing. I look forward to seeing the rest of the series and seeing what you do next. Um, that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about um, your art and what it means to be queer and South Asian. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Carnegie. And that was artist Ravina Grover speaking with Carnegie about queer South Asian identity and art. You can follow Ravina's art on A-R-T-G-R-V-R on Instagram or check out her website at ravinagrover.simplesite.com. We're now going to go to a track. Um, this is by a group called OETHA, an acronym for Our Earth, The Heart Acknowledges. And it's made up of uh, three really strong Indigenous women, rappers and singers. They are Lady Lash, Dizzy Doolan and Miss Hood. And this is their song, Sister Girl. Started with the whisper, carried on the wind to bring freedom to her sisters. 
It dates back from the sands of time. Women had it worse than race or genocide. Combined, tell them in the darkness, resilience thrives with an unmatched beauty and fire in her eyes. She burns as bright as the stars in the sky. Cause the warrior spirit is very hard to come by. So when they ask, what's a woman's worth? You say the greatest gift alive on earth. Uh, uh. Beautiful queen. So just playing in the background there is uh, part of the song uh, Sister Girl by um, First Nations group Oetha. Um, we weren't able to play the entire song, but highly recommend that you check it out. So Tender is an award-winning podcast that explores the way that women reconstruct their lives and identities after leaving abusive relationships. Through the intimacy of audio storytelling, each season follows uh, one woman's journey as they gradually come to know themselves again and reclaim their right to tell their own story in their own words. Um, there, uh, There's going to be a special episode of Tender um, uh, being with a collaboration between the two producers, um, Beth Atkinson Quinton and Madison Griffiths, as well as some um, schools where they explore um, uh, the idea of consent and discuss through their stories and experiences um, the language of consent. And that special episode will be released through the Wheeler Centre and um, Tender. Um, today on the show, we've got uh, Beth and Madison to tell us more about this special project. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. Thanks so much for having us. Um, Madison, I might start with you. For listeners who are not familiar with Tender, could you please tell us the origins of the podcast? Absolutely. Um, Tender started a few years ago and um, it was birthed out of me wanting to write or create some sort of um, audio project surrounding my own experience, leaving an abusive relationship. Um, And after the first season I um, met Beth who was on Triple R at the time um, running an incredible show called The Blast House and Beth asked to speak to me and um, was interested in what it would look like to collaborate with me in the making of the second season of Tender as part of um, their audio team Broadwave. So um, we got together, we decided it would be a really, really wonderful partnership and Season two was birthed about two and a half years later because the <laughs> pandemic happened and uh, life got in the way a little bit. But it's uh, it's been absolutely wonderful and such an exciting collaboration between Beth and I. Beth, could you tell us more about uh, season two of Tender and and telling us just a bit about Roya's story? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we actually found Roya through watching the ABC program, You Can't Ask That, which um, looked at domestic violence. And, you know, she spoke so well and, um, you know, with so much heart on that show that we we really, you know, we wanted to reach out to her and see if she might be up for um, sharing her story with us. And, you know, we did approach Roya quite early on um, in the production. And, you know, as Madison said, it kind of went on for a long time because of the pandemic. But, um, you know, the season really follows her lived experience after, um, you know, going through some pretty horrific domestic abuse. And, you know, Roya was really adamant that she wanted the story to focus on um, what, you know, what it looks like to to rebuild and kind of put your life back together after something quite horrific has happened. And, you know, she really was adamant about the fact that 
she did want it to be hopeful because in, in many ways it is and that there is able to be life after abuse uh, after abuse but um, yeah the, the season really kind of looks at the intricacies of um, yeah what it means to to live with abuse and kind of looking at the um, I suppose often misunderstood dimensions of surviving abuse so yeah the, the season starts um, at the moment of her kind of after, which begins at a Perth hospital. Um, and, yeah, it kind of goes from there across six episodes. I don't want to um, give too much away because I do really want to encourage listeners to um, listen to both season one and, and two of Tender. But um, there is, like you said, you know, um, Royal wanting to explore, you know, hope and, and other sides of, of leaving an abusive relationship. You do really hear that in every single episode. Um, it's it's not what you think. I think as, as it starts, you, um, I personally had the feeling that it was going to be, you know, quite sad. And, and there are moments of, of sadness um, throughout the series, but there are moments of joy um, as well. Uh, which which I think is really beautiful and, and it just adds to the complexity of of people's lives really. Um, having having said that, I'm really excited to see what you both do next with Tender. Um, so Tender and the Wheeler Center are collaborating on a special episode on the language of consent. Um, could you tell us how you came up with this idea of collaborating with schools um, to produce this special episode? Madison, I might start with you. Absolutely. Um, during the making of the second season of Tender, Beth and I had obviously a lot of time to reflect on the nature of abuse and the origin story of abuse for a lot of people and, and how these kind of relationships um, start and grow. And, and because of that, um, we were also able to look back at our own lives and think about, importantly, I guess, the age of, of, of us and, 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 yeah, how old we were when we were, when we were experiencing this kind of... Um, the ideas and the um, and the themes that led us to make the making of Tender. So, collaborating with um, the Wheeler Centre seemed like a really, really wonderful opportunity to get to the heart of young people that are experiencing these things, or at least are aware of these things, and perhaps if given the confidence and the creative um, opportunity to engage with those topics would be able to think about their own origin stories and think about how no one exists in a vacuum. Um, yeah, I, I think we're definitely thinking about our uh, our younger selves um, when we were deciding on what to do with this, this initiative. Yeah, amazing. Um, and I think that's super important as well, just getting students actively involved um, in sharing their stories and experiences. So I think often they're sort of talked at or talked to about these um, important topics and yet they're not actually asked to get involved and, and share what they already know or what questions they have or what concerns they have about about relationships um, and the language that we use to talk about it. Um, at, here on 3CR we've talked about um, consent before and it's and something that crucial that is crucial for all um, relationships, not just romantic or sexual, um, in breaking down the language of consent, how could this transform the way that we communicate or interact with each other? Um, Beth, I might throw this question to you. Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've kind of said it there. Like, I think that young people and students are already navigating these kind of 
interpersonal dynamics in their own lives, whether it be, as you said, romantic relationships or platonic ones. Um, and, you know, whether they have the language around it or not, young people should really be given the tools to kind of celebrate and, and embrace um, autonomy. And I think that, you know, if, if, if given that, that it's really beneficial for everyone, I think empowering people to kind of check in with themselves, what are their needs, what are their wants, and then giving people the language to be able to articulate them to themselves first and foremost and then to somebody else. So beneficial for safety, for, for health, you know, for their sanity. Um, you know, what, how do I want to be treated? Is this okay? You know, all the things around enthusiastic consent and just really being able to communicate um, every step of the way. Yeah, definitely. Um, something that I... Um, noted while listening to Tender was that, you know, it is following someone's personal journey, but um, interspersed with with those experiences, you do have discussions about, you know, in 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 Roya's case, like looking at um, not just her experience as a woman leaving an abusive relationship, but as um, bringing in faith as well, um, you know. Uh, gender, um, everything else that, and, and those are all discussions that we're having um, every day constantly. Um, what do you, uh, do you envision um, tender to, or, or I guess what is your vision for tender um, uh, in the future going beyond this um, this uh, special episode on consent? Do you have any other, other ideas for your, for your podcast, just as someone who <laughs> is a fan of that? the podcast um madison I'll, I'll go to you first absolutely um i'm really glad that you mentioned the multifaceted dimensions of roya's story and one thing that beth and i really wanted to be able to explore in the making of tender season two three four however long it goes um is that each individual that arrives that abuse and then the, their aftermath is also straddling with a bunch of other different socio-political, socio-cultural factors associated with their identity. Um, so for us, it's really important to tell stories accurately and also to tell stories about and um, with a variety of people from various different experiences um, to be able to really look at how abuse manifests and also the recovery um, and celebration and joy that lives afterwards. So, yeah, it is really exciting um, in the future to know that we will be working with a variety of different people, um, hoping to capture the experiences of a number of different survivors. And I guess, our, yeah, our priority is ensuring that we do tell those stories that really, really need to be told. Definitely. Yeah, I think something that I... Um, I went away with um, thinking about uh, abusive relationships and, and surviving them is is that it's not just the abuse that, you know, happens between um, two or more people. It's like abuse from the system, abuse from um, institutions, um, all of those things that, that were explored in, in Roya's um, season of, of Tender. Um, just to finish us off for today, um, Beth, if if there are listeners out there who um, work in schools or are interested in finding out more about the project, where can they go to learn more about Tender? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to find out more about Tender, you can head to our website, which is broadwavepods.com forward slash Tender. Um, and we've got some information about the workshop. And you can also head to the Wheeler Centre's website um, and check out their events page. And yeah, just directs you to contact the school's programmer, Beck Kavanagh, who's been wonderful to work with on this. Well, that's all the time we have um, today, but I just wanted to thank you so much, Madison and Beth, for coming on our show and speaking to us about uh, your podcast and and where it's headed in the future. I think that's really exciting. Um, uh, We look very much looking forward to its release. Um, But, yeah, thank you again for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Thank you so much. So we were speaking just now to Madison Griffiths and Beth Atkinson-Quinton from The Tender Podcast. To find out more about the series and other Broadwave podcasts, you can head to www.broadwavepods.com. We're now going to go to a track, straight away to a track. Um, This is a song called Keep My Cool by Greta Stanley, who's a Cairns-based pop rock artist. And this song is from her second album, Real Love in Real Life, which was released uh, just last week. This is her song, Keep My Cool, and there is a language warning on this. So um, if you would prefer not to listen, please come back in around three minutes. I am so hard To keep it to myself Oh, but you make it hard work for me, babe With every little thing you do I lose my senses, I lose myself And there's no subtle way to say this No, there's no hint that could truly imply The way that I, I just want to be adored by you I want to be the one you're pining for I just want to be adored by you I want to have everything you've been searching for I just want to be adored
Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Hey you mob, it's the simple everyday things we can all do that will help protect our families and community from coronavirus. Like wearing a mask when required, catching up outside if we can, keeping indoor spaces well ventilated with windows and doors open as much as possible and getting tested if we feel unwell. Let's keep being COVID safe every day. To find out more, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. On April 27, the UK Parliament approved the Nationality and Borders Bill, a policy that will criminalise entering the UK without a visa, give the government power to strip people of their British citizenship without their knowledge, and will process applications of asylum seekers offshore in countries like Rwanda. Joining us today to break down the Nationality and Borders Act is Lucy Honan, who has been a part of the Refugee Action Collective for over a decade. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Lucy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, could you please start by uh, just telling us a bit about how you got involved with the Refugee Action Collective? Sure. Um, I've been involved in the Refugee Action Collective um, for for a very long time, but um, I suppose refugees in Australian politics over the last couple of decades have been such a major um major issue. It's been the way that both major parties have tried to kind of beat each other over the head with, you know, how how much they can appeal to the right, how much they can, you know, pretend to be shoring up our borders and being the strong people in the, um, in the game. 
Um, but the obvious fact that, you know, Australia has been overseas creating wars, participating in wars that create refugees and those refugees um, aren't, you know, uh, coming here as terrorists. They're not coming here um, for any other reason to seek asylum, as is their right. Um, I guess that that basic fact seeps through all of the um, all of the charade. So, um, yeah, I guess I I guess I've been involved since um, the Gillard government tried to concoct a deal to send refugees to Malaysia, actually, mm. um, and it was a horrifying sort of political moment where everyone realised, okay, the Labor Party repealed some of Howard's offshore detention policies but hang on they're bringing them back and that was the first attempt to do so it was um it was fought successfully but obviously we saw them ultimately bring back um png and nauru yeah and now speaking of offshore processing um now looking at the uk parliament's nationality and borders act they've got something very similar and in fact a lot of their policies or a lot of the aspects of this act are are quite similar to australia's refugee policies um could you give us just an overview of this act to begin with yeah okay so it sounds like you um you did in your introduction um very successfully it's uh it it's it's uh, kind of a huge, huge um, app. Well, it's not a bill anymore. It's an act. They've passed it. That covers... I mean, the headline thing is is that what people are focused on, the, um, the possibility of sending people to Rwanda um, and that, you know, it strengthened the UK government's capacity to um, strip people of citizenship without even giving them notice. They already have that capacity. Now they can do it without giving anyone notice. But there are so many little bits in it that just are um, attempts to replicate um, Australian refugee brutality. So they've introduced temporary protection visas, um, which are, you know, better than Australia's actually, that they they prevent um, settlement for at least 10 years. So, you know, we've got a, a rule where people are supposedly not allowed to ever permanently resettle here. But for 10 years, they've got people living in limbo where... Um, there's no family reunion, um, they're excluded, there's um, no recourse to public funds, which means people are excluded from childcare and parenting subsidies. Um, so the second class status um, situation that we um, we have created here applies there. There also, I mean, this was hotly contested about boat turnbacks, but there is provision within the Act to allow boat turnbacks. It includes the deletion of the obligation to take into account safety of war at sea, um, the power to seek to return a boat to another country without that con- country's consent, um, which exercise could hamper rather than reinforce the effective coordination of rescue efforts. So basically to refuse to rescue people and turn them back as Australia has been doing for many years. Um, and the conferral of immunity from criminal and civil penalties for anything done by a relevant officer who is basically turning back boats. So, you know, they, they can do that. And one other, I mean, it seems small, but actually this was in the news lately in Australia. Um, they're, they're going to introduce the use of X-ray to determine age. Um, so this uh, is a really um, disputed and um, outdated technology. And Australia used it to determine the age of Indonesian crew members who were um, who were bringing refugees from Indonesia to Australia. People call them people smugglers. 
Um, they were crew members on, on boats rescuing asylum seekers. Um, and they were when they got to Australia, they claimed they were teenagers. Um, but uh, the Australian officials did these dubious x-rays um, and treated them as, um, as over 18 on the basis of these x-rays, um, threw them in jail in, in adult prisons. Um, and many years, like, like just lately, the uh, last couple of weeks, those um, pe- people, they are men now because it's been so long ago, um, successfully um, proved that the, this technology was a joke and they, um, they got some justice in the Australian system, um, you know, supporting their side of it. But, you know, the fact that just this week that that's happened in Australia, the UK is now introducing this. It just, I mean, I think there are just so many aspects of it that go to show that somebody has poured with a fine-tooth comb over the Australian deterrence policy, um, you know, regime with all its cruel and nasty little mechanisms and, and, and picked them out and tried to knit them together for the UK. Yeah, um, I, I think that really says something about the about the Australian government's policies here and, and the history of, of how they've been treating asylum seekers and refugees. It's It's... Just awful. Um, how does international law come into this? Um, it, it seems to go against. Um, it, yeah, it seems to go against international law in terms of providing care for, for people who are fleeing um, danger and violence from their home country. Yeah, I mean, it, it flies in the face of um, the UN Convention, and I think that's what the um, the fifty one Convention on the um, rights of refugees and I think that's what people are very very concerned about that this is a precedent that takes apart um you know one of a a cornerstone I suppose of what people believe exists to protect refugees around the world since you know since the holocaust and world war ii um the truth is that Australia has already been working hard to undo this and in fact fortress Europe since um you know, the Syrian refugee crisis really has put up borders, has raised wire, razor wire fences, has created technologies in transportation to effectively increase deterrence, to um, reject their obligation. Um, but, you know, this is, this is just a huge step forward and the UNHCR has objective you know, vociferously, mm. um, but to no avail. The um, you know the Tory party in um, the UK is is not interested. Yeah, um, what if, what impact will this have on on those seeking um, a seeking asylum in the UK? I mean, um, we know that last year. Um, towards the end of last year, around 27 people died in the um, English Channel trying to cross. Uh, uh, to the UK and we know that in France you know in Calais um, there have been reports of police destroying camps mm. and um, and uh, yeah stopping people from from helping um, asylum seekers refugees who are who are staying there um, what in your opinion what is the future for for people who are seeking asylum and safety in the UK now that this bill has become an act um yeah i don't know a terrifying future and and horrifying choices i mean i don't i don't know what people will do but if it's anything like what australia has done you know or or people say trying to seek asylum from australia but you know like the 
the, well, you know, a lot of people say that offshore detention has worked or so-called worked in Australia to deter refugees um, and that it, it effectively did stop the boats. In other words, people thought that the prospect of Nauru and PEG was so horrifying that they'd rather stay either in Indonesia or Malaysia or somewhere else, somewhere else in Southeast Asia that, you know, is less secure, not a signatory to the UN Convention, um, not a place of, of safe resettlement. But... The truth is we don't know what happened there because Operation Sovereign Borders has such a secretive approach to people who have attempted to come by boat to Australia. So we don't know how many people came by boat and, and decided actually, my, you know, I, I'm, there is no security other than this, this hopeful option. So um, we know that some boats have been turned back, but how many, um, you know, that's just a matter of extreme, extreme secrecy. So whether people continue to attempt to cross the channel, um, whether whether it is, yeah, you know, still a prospect that um, people may try to come to the UK because the camps in Calais are so horrific, mm. it's a possibility. I mean, they're, they're, as happened in Australia, actually, um, the places, the places, it makes it sound like it's a, a holiday camp, but like the prisons in mm. Nauru and PNG filled up really quickly, actually, because people were still coming. And so I think there was a, there was, there is a kind of luck of the draw element still where people who were on the same boat, some ended up in PNG, some ended up in Nauru, um, some ended up actually living in Australia and have lived in Australia for nine years rather than an offshore detention camp, you know, albeit on very discriminatory, you know, very limbo-ish conditions. But, you know, perhaps those people thought, well, it was worth worth, worth trying yeah. rather than being stuck as well in an Indonesian camp because, you know, that's uh, that's also a prospect. So I, don't, I, have, I have no idea what people will do, but, you know, England has just made the world a, a much scarier place for so many people. For sure. Um Unfortunately, Lucy, we've run out of time for today, but um, thank you so much for joining us on the show to, to speak to us about the Nationality and Borders Act. Um, perhaps we could um, have you back on the show to, to go through this in more detail at a later date. Um, but, yeah, if there's anyone out there who wants to look it up, it's it's the Nationality and Borders Act that passed just a couple of days ago. Um, thank and you again, I, Lucy, for joining us. Can I just us. give you a little, oh, a little sure. plug on... Yeah. Um, Next Monday night, we actually are having a forum about this online, um, and we've got speakers from the UK who are activists, some some people who have experienced Australia's offshore detention. Um, so it should be a good discussion to get into the meat of it. Awesome. Well, um, maybe we can give the link in. Uh, we can pop that in our show notes later this morning for people to access. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks okay. for thanks for joining us, Lucy. Bye. So that was Lucy Honan from Refugee Action Collective speaking to us about the Nationality and Borders Bill that's just passed in the UK. And Lucy's just let us know that on Monday there'll be a forum unpacking this, um, speaking to specialists in the UK and people who have also suffered um, from the from Australia's cruel um, refugee policies here. Uh, all right, we're going to go straight into a conversation just to round out the show that I had a couple of days ago. Um, 
<clears throat> sorry, excuse me, I haven't spoken in a while, <laughs> with an incredible uh, person that I met, uh, Shamsia Husseinpour, uh, who does a lot of work uh, in journalism and activism and is an Afghan Hazaras uh, refugee. Um, and I caught up with her to discuss all of her pursuits. And uh, I'm going to play the first part of this interview now. So today on the show, we have a very special guest, uh, Shamsia Husseinpour, who is a recent graduate from RMIT and is now working with the ABC News Breakfast, which is actually where I met her. She's the founder of Anonymous Hope, which is a non-for-profit charity that helps to raise awareness and funds for minorities in Afghanistan, including Hazaras, women, orphans, and children. <laughs> She's also a podcast host for Bullock, an analyst network, which is a non-for-profit organization that focuses on issues relating to Hazaras. She's also an advocate for refugees and minorities, and she joins us on Tuesday Breakfast to discuss her many pursuits and her experience with being a journalist in Australia. Thank you so much for joining us, Shamsia. Thank you so much for having me on the show. No, absolute pleasure. I'm very excited. So you studied journalism at RMIT and have obviously been well across many different media platforms like Bloomberg and the ABC. Um, it would be awesome to just start off with, you know, why did you want to do journalism and why do you think it's important? I'm really, I was really passionate uh, to study journalism uh, for many reasons. One of my main reason was that I, you know, growing up um, and, you know, spending my uh, teenagehood in Australia, I didn't see a lot of representations, especially from, uh, you know, including women like myself who wears a headscarf or a hijab. Um, so I sort of felt excluded. And, you know, it, it, when there were opportunities for um, Muslim women or uh, hijabi women to be on the news, it was often um, uh, degrading and oppressing in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really took a toll on my uh on, on the way I saw myself, uh, I, the way I saw my identity, the way I, ident- uh, the way I, I, I identified myself as a um, Muslim woman wearing headscarf. Um, so, you know, it, it felt like there was no place for me in the media or in the journalism um, organizations. And, you know, I took my mom's advice um, who said, you know, if you want to bring change, you have to be in it to win it. Um, you can't wait for someone else to... Do, uh, to give you a voice or to give you a chair to sit uh, around the table. You have to do things and create your own changes if you want to bring that sort of change into um, that industry. And that's why I um, transferred from my previous degree to journalism and, um, you know, studied journalism, graduated last year. Um, and, you know, but also the other reason why I, I studied journalism was because uh, I want to be a voice for the minority, um, not just in terms of representing them, but obviously giving them a platform to raise their own voices. Um, because quite often, a lot of the minority voices are either suppressed or um, it's just it's just lacking. It's not there in the broader Australian media outlet. Yeah, yeah. and I'm I'm sure you've noticed like you see a lot of media outlets now trying to tick that box of like diversity and it. It's, it's not really handing over the mic, is it? No. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's, that's one thing that I've, um, 
you know, in a way, like the the changes that you see, it's it's a it's a positive change. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, it it I think for most organisation, it's about ticking the boxes. Oh, you know, we've got a few people with headscarf, or we've got a few people of uh, you know from different skin colour or background or ethnic people. Um, that's not the way it should work, and that that's not the way. That's that's quite degrading in a way, um, and it's quite condescending. These people, you know, people like myself, we've got uh, the right skill. We've got um, the right connections within the community. So if you want to uh, bring the voice of the community that, you know, that really represent the, uh, the, I guess, the whole broader Australian community, you need to employ people from those communities um, mm -hmm. instead of sending someone from, you know, the city to the um, outer suburbs to cover issues, you know, regarding or you know impacting their community yeah. so you know i guess what i'm trying to say just to summarize it is that don't tick the box by employing a few people from um, ethnic or you know minority groups but really see the potential in them really give them a platform uh to spread their wings and you know give them the the, the opportunity to grow mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent um and like, I definitely want to touch on this because even just speaking to you, um, when we've been working together uh, about the Luck Analysts Network, um, I had a bit of a browse on the website and the Facebook page, and it seems like such a great initiative and produces some amazing journalist work. But I mean, just for our audience, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the Luck? What is the network? I guess, how you got involved and what does Bullock aim to do? Uh, absolutely. So Bullock is a non-profit uh, independent organisation that works for justice, peace and uh, equality uh, in, an, uh, in an unbiased and clear uh, manner. Uh, so our mission is to uh, obviously conduct um, deeper research uh, into the issues impacting the Hazara community uh, because, you know, um, as you know, not many um, news outlets really dig into the main issues that are impacting um, the Hazara people, whether they're living in Afghanistan or Pakistan or anywhere else in the world. Um, and unfortunately, our, you know, our people, so the Hazara people have been facing genocide for decades now under, you know, the Abdul Rahman Khan's, uh, uh, you know, regime in Afghanistan from the 1892 uh, all the way to the very, uh, this day, to the very present day. Um, but unfortunately, none of the genocide has been listed on the UN's genocide uh, list. Um, and what does that say? Uh, what does that say about the way people view the Hazara people, the way that people, um, you know, cover the issues that are impacting Hazara people? And, you know, that's why we had to, the block organization uh, you know, it, it's full of people from different professions, um, you know, from diff from around uh, all over the world uh, that are working together to bring the voices of the Hazara people um, onto the surface and give them a platform to share to share uh, what they're saying and what they're feeling. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just you saying that, like, I don't know any media outlet, especially in the West that has ever really reported on uh, what's happening with the Hazar people in Afghanistan. Um, like 
have never seen any reporting about that. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, um, the UN is a human rights organization that normally covers anything that violates human rights, you know, but unfortunately, Hazaras, you know, have encountered countless uh, genocide, you know, for many decades now, but none of them have been listed on their website, uh, on the list of the UN genocide, genocidal list, I guess, Uh, which is, you know, very, it's a pity. Um, it's a pity and it's, I guess, it's oppressing on, on the way these major organisations who are supposed to be a voice for the people, who are supposed to stand up for the rights of the people, are sort of silencing um, our grief, our pain and you yeah. know, the, the tragedies, the, the atrocities that we face day in and day out. Yeah. And um, as I'm aware, you present uh, a podcast uh, for Bullock. Uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Like what kind of topics you cover or what you like about presenting um, for this specific network? Absolutely. So um, they all mainly our topics are uh, on the issues that are impacting the Hazara people, whether they're living in Afghanistan or whether they're living in Pakistan or anywhere else in the world. Um, Because like I said, we don't have a lot of platform to raise our voices. So we as an organization, have to do that on behalf of all the Hazara people. Um, so the sort of podcast that we cover or uh, the sort of topics that we cover is about Hazara genocide uh, or, um, you know, the, the terrorist attacks that that um, happen on the Hazara communities um, or, you know, the way they're viewed in Afghanistan or in Pakistan. So, like I said, all the topics are related to Hazara to Hazaras and how uh, they're being treated uh, systemically and racially and ethic- uh, ethnically. So, um, yeah, I guess it brings, it shed a light on the situation of the Hazaras. So a lot of, as you know, a lot of the, because of the genocide, because of the, you know, the decades and then the ongoing genocide that's, um, that impacted the Hazara community, many Hazaras have left Afghanistan and are all scattered around the world, mm-hmm. um, including myself, who have been in, living in Australia for about 15 years now. Um, you know, the, the, one of the main goals that Bullock has is to not only provide a voice for the Hazaras within Afghanistan, but also uh, provide information and keep people like a new generation like myself or younger generation like myself um, keep us updated and and you know I guess inform us about what we've been through and why we we are no longer in our country why why we have to why why we face these atrocities um, what is our crime you know these are the things that the younger generations will continue to ask their parents um, because a lot of a lot of the kids who are raised in the West they may not speak or read uh, their native language. So they can't rely on the sources that is that are coming out of Afghanistan. So what Bullock is doing is not only pr- producing their content in Dari language, but also in English so that people like myself and people like you, non-Afghans or non-Hazaras, can read and know about the history of Hazara people. Yeah, that's obviously in- extremely important. And I mean, it must be really frustrating for you as well to look at I guess some of the discussion going on especially in Australia about Afghanistan and 
I mean, Afghanistan's a country, but there's like many ethnic groups situated in Afghanistan and those kind of get washed over as soon as I guess anyone reports on anything that's going on there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, when we hear about um, when, whenever there's a terrorist attack that happens in, in Kabul or, or any other major cities in, in Afghanistan, we often hear it as, as you know, oh, um, you know, X number of Afghans have been killed, but they don't label it correctly uh, because Afghans, a lot of the Hazaras are against the term Afghan because it doesn't represent Hazaras. They, they are identified as Hazaras or Afghan Hazaras, not Afghan. Because yeah. Afghan is a different tribe, um, you know, which which a lot of the Hazaras have been facing majority of its atrocities from the Afghan or from the Pashtun people, from the Pashtun tribe. So, you know, when we hear in the West, um, when, when they report, the way they report their news, it's, it's even in the reporting, they silence our identities. They silence, they, they, they fail to give the basic rights to us Hazara people, and that is identifying us as Hazara people. Because when people look at the, the you know, the attacks, they just look at it as, a, as Afghan, as a whole, as a country. They don't look at it as, oh, you know what, this, this, these attacks that happened since the last 11 days, there has been 11 attacks in this month of the, the holy month of Ramadan that was, that's supposed to be, you know, a month of spiritual, a month of, um, you know, uh, a charitable, a charitable month, a, a month of mercy. There's, there has been eleven attacks back to back for eleven days, and you know all of this, all of the attacks has been uh, in and around uh, the Hazara communities in Afghanistan. But yeah. finally, because us Hazaras living in the West, because we've been, you know, pleading and just crying out loud and saying that you know you need to identify us as as Hazaras, not as Afghans. And that way you really shed a light on, on the impacts that, um, I guess, on the atrocities that we go through, not just as a general, oh, you know. For example, it's like the same as if you, if there's, um, uh, if the indigenous community is going through something and you go, oh, Australians are, you know, facing X, Y, and Z, but it's not all Australians, it's the indigenous community. Yeah, you can't paint all. You can't compare the indigenous community with the white community because, you know, chances are the white community may not be facing the same thing as the indigenous community. It's the same as that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, you think a place like Australia would know that firsthand, <laughs> but uh, that was the first half of a discussion I had with Shamsia Hussein Poor, who is a journalist and activist for Hazaras people in Afghanistan and internationally. We're going to take a quick little break and we'll be back with the second part after this. <laughs> Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com 
or on Facebook and Instagram. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to go into the second part of my discussion with Shamsia Hussein-Poor, who is a recent graduate from RMIT and is now working in ABC News Breakfast. She's the founder of Anonymous Hope, which is a non-for-profit charity. She's also a podcast host for Block Analysts Network, which is a non-for-profit organization that focuses on issues relating to Afghan Hazaras. Uh, In this part of the discussion, we talk about the difference between reporting on Afghanistan versus Ukraine and Shamsi's non-for-profit charity, Anonymous Hope. Um, Obviously, yeah, it's easier for them just to brush it over. Um, I did want to focus on, you know, obviously now you've had quite a lot of experience working in media and journalism. And I guess from this experience and also your lived experience as a refugee and a Muslim woman here in Australia, you know, what have you noticed about being a journalist or journalism in general here? And I think I particularly asked this question just because there's a lot of discussion around, you know, big media outlets and, you know, clickbait journalism, you know, not actually doing honest work and predominantly treating journalism more like a money-making business. And even, you know, you can see that with, you know, what was happening with Afghanistan uh, last year with, you know, the withdrawal of uh, the US and NATO and the Taliban takeover. And, you know, that was like blowing up in the news. And now obviously we have Ukraine and like all of the news is directed to Ukraine and even how they're reporting in a different manner to like how they were reporting in Afghanistan to how they're reporting about Ukraine, you know, because Ukraine's in Europe and like Ukrainians are white and like, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, you know, being uh, working in a big media organization and as a journalist, um, what obviously what, what, what happened with the withdrawal of the U S from Afghanistan last year and the, the, the takeover of the Taliban regime Yes, there was, um, you know, all the attention was suddenly on Afghanistan. And I felt like the if you had to compare the way they reported the issues in Afghanistan to like the, the crisis in Afghanistan, compare that with what's happening in Ukraine, it's like two worlds apart. Uh, apart. You know, the way they reported uh, the situation in Afghanistan, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, these people, like they've been... Um, you know, being killed or they, they, the Taliban or a terrorist group or, you know, the way they portrayed it, it was like us and them, mm-hmm. you know, they're not part of us. Uh, y- yes, they're human, but they're not like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was in that way. Whereas Ukraine, because it's, you know, majority of the people in there are like blue eyes, blonde hair. So suddenly they, we, the way they are being portrayed is like, oh, you know, we have to have, we have to do something about these people. We have to, um, you know, uh, we have to save them. We, we, we give them X amount of money. We provide, uh, you know, as many armies or weapons as they like. Like, that's great. I'm really happy that they're doing that for, you know, for human beings who are facing crisis. Yeah. But why is that? Why is there a difference between what the uh, people of Afghanistan went through uh, you know, to what people of Ukrainians are going through. Um, you know, in the past, uh, since the war between Russia and Ukrainians started, there's been, you know, hundreds of people died. Hundreds of people died in, in during that war. 
in Afghanistan, and especially in the last 11 days, we have had double the number of people being killed. And I feel like we don't have a voice in the media at all. Yeah. Yeah, there seems to be, even with Afghanistan, um, there seems to be such a paternalistic, like even patronising duty mm. of care about it that was like, oh, well, they, you know, it's, it was always very much like, oh, well, the, it's this ish, their issue, but, you know, we'll, we have some sort of moral superiority about it that we're going to, like, imprint on them. It just even, like, um, how, you know, it, the US pretty much is the predominant reason or, I guess, foreign uh, occupation of Afghanistan is the predominant reason uh, why like this has happened in the first place and deflecting all responsibility of that is just so frustrating. Absolutely. I guess the reason why Afghanistan is, 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 is in the hands of a group of terrorists is because of, you know, countries like the US and its allies, in their allies, um, you know, going in there, creating a war, you know, fueling, adding fuel to the fire, and then it's like, oh, it's no longer our business. We must pack and go. We will leave all our equipments, including, you know, um, our tanks or, uh, you know, weapons, whatever, you know, the Taliban need. We will leave, we will leave it here. We won't, we won't take it with us. Uh, but it's no longer our business. We have done enough for the past decade. Uh, it's, we've, you know, we've trained, quote unquote, we've trained um, the Afghan people to defend themselves. It's like, no, you haven't tried anything. The only thing you've done is literally killed thousands and hundreds of innocent civilians. Yeah. Well, the US is, I think, after World War II is the country that has invaded the most countries since after World War II. Like, it's something like 20-something countries it's invaded. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> In some ways, I'm not. I'm no longer shocked because I've seen it and I've encountered it. Um, the first-hand racism from uh, the West. So it's it's just a pity the way they the way they put like they, they see the difference between the two wars. Although you know innocent civilians die at both end. Um, I did want to speak about um, your the non-profit charity Anonymous Hope that you founded. Um, if you could just tell our listeners, you know, what is Anonymous Hope and why did you decide to start it? So the Anonymous Hope was found in 2016. Um, this was uh, a year, um, actually it was my first year at uni, just freshly graduated from high school. And I founded this uh, charity in the month of Ramadan um, while I was walking from station uh, to my house. Um, you know, it was a cold winter and even though I was fully covered and, you know, I wore warm clothes, but I was hungry, obviously because I was fasting, um, but also because it was winter time and I felt cold, I was hungry. And it made me think about the homeless people, about the uh, less fortunate people in the world. Um, and so... And I finally decided, okay, I'm going to do something about it. And I founded this charity. Um, and for the first year, so in 2016, I fed uh, more than 100 homeless people around one CBD. I provided about 70, more than 70 blankets to those homeless people, sanitary products for homeless women, you know, warm socks, mm -hmm. um, 
just the basic, uh, you know, I guess, necessities for the homeless people. Um, and then obviously from uh, since 2016, the funds have been going towards Afghanistan um, because there's been there's always been a major attacks on the Hazara community, on the Hazara people. Um, you know, every Ramadan, uh, there's, there's always been some sort of attack. Um, and so the funds have been going towards the orphan uh, widows and you know, particular wo women in general, but especially widows. Um, and just, uh, I guess, the minorities such as the Hazara people, because they don't have the support of uh, the government. They didn't. They never had the support of the government um, because they faced systemic discrimination. Uh, even though, like um, you know, just recently when the international tried to um, aid, Af provide aid for Afghanistan, none of those supplies went towards people. Has, went towards the Hazara people. They all went obviously because the Taliban are in control. So what will they do? They will distribute it to themselves to the people that they want to distribute to, not to the Hazaras or the Shia people. So what my charity does is provide fund for those families, especially in the rural um, side, of, like areas of Afghanistan, where there's no media outlet, where there's no much uh, of, I guess, their voice is completely suppressed um, uh, by, you know, from where they live to like the, because uh, the, the, there's no, coverage there's no media uh, coverage on them so they are completely voiceless and so luckily i've got people who can distribute the fund to those families but before the war began the money used to fund for um women and uh, women to i guess fish for themselves mm -hmm. uh, we bought um many sewing machines for women to sew clothes and i guess start their own little business um, and that way they could fish for themselves rather than, rather than us providing the fish. Um, and then later on, we funded um, young, for younger girls' education to go to school, you know, to buy their books and their uniform and things like that. Um, but, yeah, we've been, so far, we've been extremely successful since uh, December, sorry, sorry, since November last year, we've um, donated more than uh, 10,000 people um, and this is just me starting uh, this organization, it, and, it, and it goes and it goes to show that if you put your mind to it, if you if you're passionate about something, if I, you may be one person, but you can change the lives of many um, who yeah. are desperately looking for some sort of miracle. Yeah, that's incredible, an incredible story, and I guess it even just goes to show, like you know, you start something from the ground and you have I guess like connections with Af Afghanistan which is you know thousands of people were donating to charities that they really didn't understand where the funds were going you know mm. if you donate to places that are actually like I know this place I yep. know where the funds go I make sure that they go to the right places I understand what people need in these places yep. and it actually makes change <laughs> That's predominantly why I started my own fundraising because, you know, when I, if you, if you think about charities in general, millions and if not, if, 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 if not millions, thousands of dollars are, are donated to charities and, you know, different organizations, but there is still, you know, extreme poverty. There is still homelessness, like so many issues that can be covered or can be 
fixed with those money, but where does it go? It kind of questions you and it, and it kind of makes you um, be a bit hesitant when it comes to donating, right? Yeah. And because I was in that position once upon a time. And so, you know, thankfully I know people in Afghanistan. And so by collecting, you know, money from my family and friends and network, I, I can reassure them that, you know, the money does not go in my pocket. And, you know, when I send the money, all the fees that I have to pay comes from my own pocket as well. Um, so, and I am very transparent with what I do with their money. Um, yeah. I have an Instagram page where they can see videos of how uh, their money is helping people in those rural areas of, of Afghanistan. And, you know, it reassures them that like people, someone that they know is doing this and is, it's going to the right hands. I guess just to finish off, for any listeners that, you know, their ears perked up um, when you were talking about your many, the many things that you do, you know, where can they find uh, information about Baluk Analysts Network? Where can they read some of the stuff about that? And also, you know, where can they access Anonymous Hope? So if they, um, for Baluk, for any uh, articles or any further information about the Baluk organisations, just go to www.bullock so that's b-o-l-a-q dot org um that's the website for block um and to find me uh, is um just either type shansia so that's s-h-a-m-s-i-y-a dot writes so w-r-i-t-e-s nine seven that's my writing page where i normally post a lot of um information about the ongoing issues in afghanistan and around the world and also Anonymous Hope. Um, so if you follow my writing page, uh, you will see that I follow my um, Anonymous Hope page as well as there. And yep. if you like to donate anything, uh, the money will go directly towards those impacted, uh, particularly women and children. So um, it is 100% non-for-profit um, and you know everything will be transparent on the Anonymous Hope Instagram page. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And yeah, we'll pop all of those in our show notes so people can access them. Uh, well, thank you so much. You're, I'm actually just like blown away <laughs> by how much incredible work you do, Shamsia. Like this is insanely like important. And I mean, the thing that we stress here at, like at 3CR is independent, non-for-profit, grassroots. Like that's the stuff that actually makes a difference. So yeah, thank you so much. Well done on everything that you're doing. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It was really, it was a pleasure chatting with you. And, you know, um, hopefully by, just by chatting with you, there is some sort of um, awareness about the Hazara people and about what I do um, that could get to more ears, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We're quickly running out of time um, coming to the end of our show, but you just heard uh, Shamsia Hussainpour, an incredible person who uh, has done a lot of work for Hazaris uh, people in Afghanistan and internationally. Uh, just before we wrap up, I wanted to plug where you could access Balak Analysts Network reporting, which is at www.balak.org, which reports on what's going on with Hazaras people uh, internationally and in Afghanistan. You can also follow them on Twitter. And if you wanted to look at more of Shamsia's journalism, you can uh, follow her on Instagram, which is at shamsia.writes97. And also you can uh, have a look at Anonymous Hope which is on Instagram as well. As always, we have uh, Accented Women coming up next and we hope you enjoy your Tuesday. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. 
Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.